covered uh, the life of Humayun right up to the point that he was exiled uh, from India by the Afghan king Sher Shah Suri. Um, and just really briefly, uh, someone had asked for a recap. Uh, obviously, Humayun inherits the kingdom from Babur. It's a very small principality from Kabul to Delhi to parts of Bengal. And Babur dies. And within about uh, five to seven years, uh, Humayun is able to really capture uh, Bengal and Gujarat. And, and I showed you in detail, right, in detail how long it took and how many battles and how much suffer Humayun had to do to conquer Gujarat, right? Um, and then within just a couple of months, he loses all of it, right? And this is um, where we start. So Humayun escapes uh, from uh, Delhi. He loses a battle to Sher Shah Suri, and then he escapes um, from uh, uh, Delhi to Lahore. Sher Shah, Sher Shah Suri comes and captures uh, and is on his heels in Lahore. And Humayun writes him a letter and says that, listen, are you not happy with Hindustan? You keep Hindustan, i.e. what is today northern India. Let me keep Lahore. And Sher Sasuri writes back is that you can flee to Kabul, Lahore it will be mine as well. So now Humayun then flees into Sindh and he loses almost all of his army. Uh, the, the king of Sindh, Mirza Jani Beg, who's also a Turkic Nawab, uh, pushes him out and Humayun then flees into Iran. Uh, and he has a brother named Mirza Kamran and Mirza Kamran is the king of Kabul refusing to give Humayun shelter, right? So this, this, uh, this sort of battle between uh, brotherly princes is still ongoing at that time. Anyways, Humayun flees into Iran, right? Um, there the Safavids are ruling. And uh, because of the relationship between Babur and the Safavid king, uh, Shah Ismail, uh, Humayun felt it was more appropriate that he go to Iran. Why didn't Humayun go to the Ottomans? The reason was because of the fact that Humayun's great-great-grandfather had pretty much almost killed the Ottoman king, Bayezid Yildirim, right? Uh, Taimur had pretty much killed Bayezid Yildirim. So uh, this bad blood between the Mughals and the Ottomans had pretty much lasted. And many of the Mughal kings, although there was a lot of embassies and there was, we still have farmans between Shah Suleiman and Akbar and Jahangir and, and Shah Jahan, um, both the Mughals and the Ottomans, because of that bad blood of Taimur killing and imprisoning Bayezid Yildirim, the great number the Ottomans, the only time they ever lost a battle in those first three centuries was to the grandfather of the first Mughal king. That was the only time they ever really lost a battle, which is really interesting to think about. Um, and uh, so Humayun now um, is now in Iran and he has designs back on India. I don't want to spend too much time. I don't want to spend more time on Akbar, but this is important. Um, Humayun uh, gathers himself about 15, 20,000 soldiers, takes Kabul from his brother, um, doesn't want to kill his brother because his father, Babur, had told him, whatever happens, show some lutf and, 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 and generosity upon your brother. Um, and this is a couplet that we have from his, um, when, in, 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 in his um, Iranian period, sorry. He says, He says that we are still, despite all of the challenges and all of the difficulties that Humayun has faced, being exiled, losing his empire, right? And this is not an easy life to, 
you spend, uh, you have 30 people with you, you can't provide for them, you're on the hospitality from one Nawab to one Raja, and the distance from Delhi to Multan to Sindh to Kabul to Kandahar and then to Isfahan, this is not a small journey on horseback. Right? There are many mountains in Afghanistan to, to suffer through that. Right? And so, again, thinking about this, this idea of that when people talk about the Mughals um, as Ayash or as, uh, you know, in Taraf or in just whiling their time away, you can't, you can't while your time away and sort of uh, keep yourself afloat through, through this tre really treacherous territory. And this is, remember, Humayun was a full-blooded Turk, right? He is 100% Turk. And, you know, Ibn Khaldun says this, that the Turks have this idea of, of mobility within them. Right, and that Humayun, despite the fact of losing his empire, right, think about that. He lost his empire. He goes, he flees to Iran, right, and he still, right, seeks to to reconquer that land, right. He still wants to sort of raise the flag of Islam. So this idea that one one challenge comes, two challenges come, and you and you give up. And you know, we spoke about during Babur's era, right, when he lost Samarkand to the to the to the Uzbek Shaybanid Khan, right. Despite all of that, how they persevere. Right. And uh, that their most of their lives was not, you know, glitter and glamour and 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 suhula and ease. Right. It was it was a very challenging life. I mean, again, Afghanistan is not, you know, some very easy plain territory. Right. To flee into that town. He has his wife with him, Hamida Banu Begum. He gives birth to Akbar in Sindh. Right. And uh, in, in a city called Thatta. Right. And then he has to go and then he comes back. And you th again, you think about right that to, to maintain that. The perseverance and that fortitude, right? What does it take? Every, you know, they're, they're praying their namazes, right? You have to find water. You have to provide. All of this stuff despite that, right? He still has that wish within him. Many times in his letters we have, he's like, why don't I just retire to Mecca and live as a faqir? Why should I put up with this? Why, why would someone put up with all of this? Truly, why, you know, to be kicked out of your land, to suffer that humiliation, and then to come back. Right? And then that dynasty will last for 340 years. Right? <laughs> Truly, Allah, Allah sees this and you have to, again, think about this, that planning. Right? All of that, all of that jiddu uh, jahad that Humayun does will last for 300 years. Right? And Muslims have to, again, think about that. That what are we doing today? Is that 300 years later, Right? Right? And that's that's something that I, I when I, when I read these, you know, historical texts, really, really manifest to me is their, is their ability, right, to keep moving, keep moving, al-harakah fil-baraka, right? You know, and so, and so we have to ask ourselves those questions that why, uh, why are Muslims not able to achieve what they had achieved, right? Um, this is his march from Kabul all the way in, into India, right? This is... You know, again, right, how, but flip side, he had to, he, at first he was exiled and then he had to come back and reconquer all of these towns. And I don't want to spend too much time. He unfortunately, so, so, so tragically in, in Delhi, uh, he, when he, once he retakes Delhi from, Sher, from, from the son or the, the grandson of Sher Shah Suri, um, he was, he, he really loved books. And I spoke about this last time, this, this love that kings had for texts from that Muslim kings had for books. Right. And you can't have this really wondrous civilization if people are not reading. Right. This constant love for just and the amount of manuscripts that we have from all of these Mughal kings times. We have a book from Shah Jahan's time of the Kafiyah, which is a very advanced Nahu text. His seal is on it. Right. So this is documentary evidence. 
that advance. Most Mulanas, by the way, have not studied that, cannot read that book to you. So you have to tell me what kind of civilization where the king is reading extremely advanced, you know, Nahu. Um, let's, uh, by the way, he, uh, Humayun, he was, he was in his library and he was coming down and the Azan for Asr went off. And unfortunately, he, he tripped. It, it's, uh, if, if, those who have been to Humayun, Humayun's fort in Delhi, it was a curved uh, library structure and he tripped on his thobe and he fell down and he hit his head. Um, on one of the steps and he died. So only within all of that effort, only within six months, you know, unfortunately he died. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, to forgive him for whatever sins that he made, whatever good that he did for Muslims, may Allah accept it. Right? And again, that's Rabbana lana wa ikhwanina bil iman. And you know, the the those words and what ikhwanina, those who are our brothers in faith, right? Not that they were all ulama, they were all Sufis, they were all mujaddids. No, they were just people who died. Right? And we can still make dua for them. Why not? You know, and this idea that we only make dua for the really righteous people. But what about the people who were st struggled just like us? Do we not make dua for them too? Of course we do. Right? And, that, and that's important. Again, that only the Holy Prophet والسلام, is perfect. Um, and the people in perfection closest to him were the Khulafai al-Rashi. That everyone, everyone after them is not this. Truly. Right? And we, m Muslims need to stop having this idea that, you know, unless they're, they check out on every single category that I see as Islam, we're not, I'm not going to respect them. Why? Why Why can we accept the good that they did? Right? I mean, if you were in that position, would you have been able to, and would you have been able to sort of be, a, be a, this epitome or manifestation of Islam in every single front or every single dimension? Probably not. I would not be able to. But I would still want people to pray for me and see the good that I tried to do in a very challenging environment. Um, before we start on Akbar, um, I'm, I'm thinking about if I should do this at the end because I don't want it to color um, uh, Akbar's, uh, you know, um, how we view Akbar because Akbar, uh, Iqbal had a different view. Um, I'll read the lines just so that we have an idea, but at the end I'll translate. So he says, we will translate this uh, at the end. Um, so Akbar is about 13 years old when his father Humayun dies. Now, what does it mean to be a 13-year-old kid? And by the way, his, the empire has just come back, right? So the darkest area, so from what we can see is Kandahar uh, before Patna, was uh, Humayun's kingdom, right? It's, it's very small, it's very fragile, it's very delicate, right? It's not a very large kingdom, right? Um, and Akbar is 13 years old. He's, again, born in sin, Muhammad, born in exile, Muhammad Jalaluddin Akbar. His first language was Turkish, right? He, they were still Turks. Uh, he learned Persian later on. Um, Throughout most of the texts that I've seen, it's, uh, Akbar was dyslexic, uh, deeply, deeply dyslexic. His father would, would be, you know, bakhan, bakhan in Farsi, read, read, and he couldn't read, bichara, you know? They didn't have a term for it back then. Even Jahangir says that even though my father couldn't read, he still loved wisdom and Islamic philosophy. We will talk about that later. And that, that, that's also part of the story, right? Um, so the, the fact that Akbar is dyslexic, and so all of his knowledge is not coming from his own study, but rather from outside sources. Um, 
both Muslim and non-Muslim, and we will get to that. He's 13 years old. And now, every time a Mughal king dies, there's always a sensitivity, right? Because it's not like the modern state. The Mughal state, and you know, we'll get to this later too, what was it based on, right? You had the you had the Badshah, you had the, uh, the Mansabdar, you had the Jagirdar, you had the Zamindar, you had the Tahsildar, you had the Fojdar, you had the Ta'alluqdar, and then you had the Chaudhrias and the other village collectors, right? And each of them had a very specific role. And all of them had a, had a horizontal and a vertical relationship with, and, uh, with the Mughal king. And this is Mughal political theory, right? If, if I were to ask someone, right, what was Mughal political theory, right, to, to, manage, to manage a universe or a political state this large, this vast, this complicated, the dozens of religions, dozens of ethnicities, hundreds of languages. What does it mean to rule all of that? Anybody, anybody can rule Catholic Spain where everybody's white, speaking Spanish, and Catholic, right? That, that's Asan. Come to India, you have uh, uh, Hindus, which are six different castes. You have Jains, you have Sikhs, you have Jews, you have Christians, right? All of these different religions. Every, every village is speaking some different dialect, Right? That, that you have Telugu and, and Tamil and Malayalam in the south, you have Punjabi in the north, you have Bang, uh, Bangla in the east, right? you have Hindi, Rajvasha in the north, you have Sindhi, you have, Balo, you have Balochi, you have Pashto, and then you have Dari with Kabul and all of that in the north. How do you manage all of that? How do you create one language that everybody can speak? Right? In America, um, you know, uh, only very recently have a diversity of languages emerged. Otherwise, it was pretty much just English and very recently Spanish. Right? So what does it mean to rule that kind of kingdom for so long? Right? To, and, and to think about how Islam can foster uh, uh, a language of commonality. Right? And again, this is from the Sunnah of Sayyidina Anhu when he conquers Iran. Iran is not an Arabic-speaking land. When he conquers pa Palestine is not Arab, by the way, uh, in, during Sayyidina Umar's time. It's Greek. These are Greek Orthodox Christians. Right? They're not speaking Arabic. They're speaking Greek. We have, you know, they're speaking Syriac and Aramaic. So how, how does Sayyidina Umar build Islam through the language of Arabic, through a commonality in these lands, right? This is important. How does, how, and, you know, and this, Shawliullah was so moved by that, that he wrote a whole book on that, Tafdeel al-Shaykhain, on the superiority of Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Umar, political theory from the Sahaba. We don't talk about this, right? That the Sahaba are building a civilization. What does that mean? What does that actually mean? And many of these letters, they're, they're always referenced Sayyidina Umar. And in fact, I was just reading from the great Hanafi jurist Ibn Maza al-Bukhari, he wrote Muhayt al-Burhani. He says that in the Hanafi madhab, fi siyasa, we always take from Sayyidina Umar. Right? And truly, what think about political theory from Sayyidina Umar, how to build. You know, I was also reading James Madison, who's one of the, the framers and the founders of the Constitution. He, he read so much of Greek and, Greek and Roman history. He drew on his past when he wrote, when, when him and, you know, Alexander Hamilton and the other framers wrote the Constitution. Muslims don't have an intellectual grasp of their past. What if, what if Muslims got together and read all of the Muslim empires and extracted political theory? And this is, you know, one of the issues that I had with the, you know, with ways, with, with the way that, you know, when the Muslim state of Pakistan and other Muslim states were formed, right? Why wasn't that, that, that very critical understanding of how all of these Muslim empires ruled and lived Islam for 1,200 years before, you know, European colonialism? How did the Sahaba do it? How did the Mamluks do it? How did the Abbasids do it? Right? These are very challenging scenarios. Why, don't, why didn't we have knowledge of that? Right? And this then becomes important because we have very simplistic narratives about the past. Right? Aurangzeb is good. Akbar is bad. Okay, but how did they rule? Akbar and Aurangzeb ruled India together for 110 years between the two of them. What does it mean to rule a subcontinent for 100 years between two people? How did they do it? Right? And they were both Muslim. You know? And so... What can we take away from that? And how can we, how can we 
honor that past, right? And I'm not even saying this as an Indian Muslim. I'm saying this as someone, as, as just a Muslim, right? How do you take Islamic values from fiqh, from hadith, from tasawwuf, and synthesize that in a political order, in a moral order, right? So that Muslims, again, can be contributors to the world. Otherwise, every Muslim will just, you know, keep advocating for the, you know, keep, just, just replicate the American constitution. What, you, Muslims don't have anything to add or contribute to the world? Right? We don't have a way to think about our philosophy, our politics, our law, our morals, or we just blindly do taqlid of, of every other civilization on earth. M Muslims want to be free in their ideas. Should we not be free in how we think of politics and, and, and how we think of law? Can, are we not allowed to have that azadi to think, to, to be free? Right? And, and one of the major reasons when I was in college that I saw so many Muslims, whether they were Arab, Pakistani, you know, North African, you name it, all of them would just and we would have discussions, they would just replicate whatever they had learned from their non-Muslim professors in class. Why? Because they had not seriously understood what Islamic civilization had produced for 1,200 years. Imagine, imagine if we could have a real and serious conversation about that. Sorry, I didn't mean for that, such a long tangent. Um, Akbar starts conquering. As soon as he comes onto the throne, he starts conquering. He's about 13, 14 years old. Bayram Khan, who is a Turk, again from Central Asia, um, who is a master of Arabic, Persian, Urdu, and remember, Urdu, uh, sorry, not Urdu, Urdu is not a language then. Uh, they had a very proto version called Braj Bhasha. Then Babur called it Hindavi. Um, you know, you have the word Hindu and then you have Ismail Mansub, you make it Hindavi. Um, and nothing like Urdu today, right? Urdu, the first book of Urdu that was written, I spoke about my first lecture, maybe 1765. The, the different, uh, the America is as old as the language of Urdu. Don't forget that, right? America and Urdu have the same shelf life about 240, 50 years. It's not a very old language. Um, and he, he comes into and becomes sort of the wazir azam I don't like that term. It's a very modern term. But he, what, what Akbar would call the wakil of the state or the representative of the state. And immediately he starts expanding because many, many of the Afghans who have been subdued by Humayun, many of the Rajputs um, have openly rebelled. And Akbar is again 13, 14 years old. And Bayram Khan and Akbar have a very small and limited army, but they start... Um, uh, uh, um, consolidating the fealty of all of the kingdoms around, right? So they go to Ajmer, they go to Panipat, they go to Lahore, they go to Agra, they go to Patna, they go to Rohtas, they go to Gujarat, they go to Bengal, right? And again, there's no airplanes, there's no ships. The, at this point, the Mughals don't have a single port city. The, the, major ports, uh, the major ports of northern India are Gujarat and Bengal, right? Through Chittagong and Surat. Or um, Karachi, but Karachi was not really a famous city until the British era, um, you know, and within eight, nine years, that empire of the, of the lighter gray becomes Akbar. So by the age of 2021, Akbar has, has massed, um, has tripled the size of the Mughal state, right? And many, you know, and this is really important, right? Because Akbar, um, the, the, the Hindu liberals really love Akbar, right? Because they say that he, you know, uh, uh, propagated Hinduism. He married a Rajput lady, etc. So we will discuss all of that in detail later. Um, and they, what they forget is that Akbar spent most of his life just conquering Hindu kingdoms. Most of his life. And that's why, and you could only, by the way, attach the title of Ghazi to your name once you had, once you had conquered non-Muslim kingdoms. So Taymor, who had only conquered one non-Muslim kingdom, which is the city of Izmir in Turkey, could only add the title Ghazi after his name after you conquer a non-Muslim town. So Akbar, by the age of 16, has the title of Ghazi. And you can't just 
call yourself a Ghazi. It's just like, I can't call myself a doctor today. There has to be, you know, you know, people, people will laugh at you, right? Like you're not a doctor, just like in that era. You, you can call yourself a Ghazi, but people will laugh at you, right? So you don't do it unless you've actually achieved it. So we have this through, through many documentations where Akbar, after conquering a number of non-Muslim towns, starts to call himself a Ghazi. Also, um, as I mentioned, uh, Babur and Humayn were both very devoted Naqshbandis. Uh, they were devotees of Khaja Ahrar, who was a descendant of Bahauddin Naqshbandi, uh, who was buried in Bukhara. Um, and Akbar himself in the beginning is very Naqshbandi. Um, and I think that when we talk about Akbar, we have to have a full arc of his life. In the beginning, Akbar is very Naqshbandi. Again, has never read a book in his life because he's dyslexic. And um, in fact, he's so Naqshbandi and so, I don't want to say militant Sunni, but there is, uh, in the graveyard of Nizamuddin Awliya, or it was another Sufi's grave in northern India, there was a Shia buried there. And Akbar was so militant that he said that, how dare we allow a Shia to be buried next to a Sunni? And he had the Shia uh, extracted, which is, nobody, no alam would ever allow that. Very, very extreme. So this idea of extremes is very sort of present in Akbar's life, right? Where he's this very militant, um, I don't, again, militant is probably not a good word, but very aggressive um, person who sees himself as the defender of Sunni Islam um, within India. And again, remember, uh, who remembers from the first lecture how, many per, how much percent of India is Muslim at this time? Who remembers? Between Peshawar and Dhaka. Four, four to five percent, right? And by partition, how much percent of, of India is Muslim? Anyone? 40, about 38 to 42 percent, right? So Akbar is dealing with a land that is predominantly Hindu, right? Every, almost everyone is Hindu except for Muslim immigrants and a few, what they call the Sheikh Zadas, who are descendants of Indian Muslims. Um, and so it's a very, very sparsely populated Muslim landscape. So um, uh, nobody even knows really what Islam is. I mean, if you're an Indian living in a village in Bengal or Gujarat, you've probably never really heard of Islam, right? So yeah, you can propagate Islam, but they don't really know what that means, right? And Akbar, during... Again, during a lot of Ghazawat starts to understand this, that nobody other than in the very elite Muslim circles who have been ruling northern India, nobody really knows what Islam is, right? And there are a lot of parallels in Akbar's era and our, our era today. Now, how Akbar addressed some of them, I would probably disagree with, and a lot of people would, um, but that doesn't mean that we can't draw lessons, right? And again, it's about this idea of ibra, right? Um, how do we, how do we um, take instructive uh, moral and political lessons from the past, as um, all of these kings did, right? The amount, um, my, my backpack's in the back, but I have the Akbar Nama, which was a 10-volume historical text. Sorry, Harun, can you, can, you, can you pass me the backpack? Um, I just wanted to really quickly show you guys. It's a 10-volume uh, uh, historical understanding of Muslim India that Akbar had commissioned, right? This is just the first volume. Right? It's all written in extremely ornate Farsi. I want, uh, I, I want to read a passage because Akbar had every single page read out to him because, remember, he couldn't read. So I want to read out a passage to you just so, again, because our history is not going to be understood from other from non-Muslim intermediaries. It's not going to be understood when we read secondary, uh, you know, tertiary sources, but rather we have to go back to the past. How many historical texts are there? Hundreds, if not thousands, you know, um, just like last week, right, I was speaking about just the Salar Jung Library in Hyderabad. There are hundreds, if not thousands, untouched Muslim historical texts, untouched, probably have not been touched in 200 years. Who, because nobody can read Farsi anymore, right? The Arabic texts are also un, un, untouched too because, unfortunately, our madaris 
don't really see history as a real serious and rigorous discipline as it once did. Shaoliullah in his Wasiat Nama urges everyone to read political history of Muslims in his last document. But again, he wrote his Wasiat Nama in Farsi and nobody, nobody can even read that Wasiat Nama. How ironic, you know? But he talks about, especially for ulama. So the, the, the fact that alims no longer have a grasp on their history has an actual I impact on, on the communities around us, right? Um, but yeah, this is something that you guys can see. Um, and it's a really phenomenal text, right? It's, this is just the first volume, right? And, and, and I know that most Muslims, most Muslim Indians have never heard of this text, which just 200 years ago, an average, average educated Muslim in, in pre-partition Hindustan would have known this text or read some part of it, right? And how this is, this, this is the reality, right? We, we stopped talking about our past. We wanted to make everyone either a physician or a lawyer, which is not a bad thing. And what happened to everything else? So what happened was that every, other people started talking about our history. And wh what was the result of that? Is we have Muslim brothers being killed in India because of the, the, the mistelling of our history. Isn't that true? Right? When, 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 when in 2004, I, how many articles? When, when Muslim young boys were being lynched on the streets in Gujarat, what were they shouting? This is, for Aurangz this is what Aurangzeb did. But if you ask them, where did they get that knowledge that Aurangzeb did this and this and this, they'll say that, oh, don't you know that's, that's facts? When you go and check the facts, it's not actually true. So again, this, this, mis, this, mistell, this mistelling, this, this, this violence of history, there, there is violence that's committed to history and that it's to our history. Why did we stop telling our own history? Right? There, there's actually physical consequences to that that now Indian Muslims have to bear the consequences of. And how, how, how tragic is that? Right? Um, this is a miniature that he had commissioned in central India, right? And I want you to see what it, this is just one fort. Akbar had conquered hundreds, hundreds of forts. This is just one fort. And anybody who has been to India or Pakistan or even Bangladesh knows how challenging these forts and, and, and how elevated these forts are, right? There's no, there's no jet fighter airplanes, F-4 bombers, nothing like that. If you see, they have ladders. <laughs> That's the only way you're going to climb up, Right? And imagine you have to go to fort, to fort, to fort, to fort. How, how, how did they do this? And what, what, what spurred them to do this? Today, you know, um, how unfortunate that um, you, that, that same zeal, right, to, 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 to keep going, right? So that the, the beauty of Islam must be spread. Um, and they understood that. Right? Despite all of those challenges, despite how much it took, I mean, just one day, just imagine one day, you're, imagine this, you're a Mughal soldier, either a Hazari or a, uh, I forget the word for a, what they used to call a foot soldier. Today we just say Paydal. Sipahi, thank you, Sipahi, right? Um, just imagine one day, right? In, in that world, you don't know where you are, um, you don't, probably don't even speak the language. It's extremely hot. All of them talk about this, how extremely hot it is. You're in armor, right? You're going from a fort to another fort, right? You don't know what you're conquering. You don't know what you're going to get. And you, you keep going. They say Akbar spent 60% of his time just on Ghazawat. It's still less than Aurangzeb, but I mean, it's, that's, that's phenomenal. He lived a long life, right? Um, and, and to me, I see this as just really the result of the values of Islam. What, I mean, obviously the Sahaba are superior in every single way. I'm not, I'm not doubting that at all. But I, that when you build a culture, right, when you build a culture, culture where you have to make qurbani, where you have to make sacrifice, 
right? This happens, right? Where you're waking up in the morning, you have to, you know, there's no hot water, all of that, right? And for, for what purpose? Truly, why, why would you do this? Truly, for, for day in and day out when you can just, when Akbar could have just stayed at home uh, in the Pai Takht or the, in the capital of Delhi or in Agra or in Fatehpur Sikri when he built his capital later on. Why? Right? Um, speaking about Fatehpur Sikri, uh, there is, um, this is the, is the model, right? So the, there's a lot of intention. There's a lot of thought produced under this. Right, just in every single aspect of life, whether it's art, right, whether it's architecture, your homes, your masajid, all of it. There's so much intentionality, and at the end, I, you know, um, we'll speak more on this, right? You have you have the prince's school, the maktab for for Akbar's sons, right, where they would study Arabic, Persian, and Turkish. Um, you had the dining hall, you had the khilwat khana, you had the sahne daulat khana, the alwan khana, the chahar khana, right, the divane khane, the 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 khas, the divane am, right. All of this is extremely and i mean these, these are really beautiful buildings um you know uh so I, I want to spend some time on this just just for people to know right this is not some very haphazard very scattered civilization because akbar knew that if you are a king right and especially if you're in a new land people are not going to take you seriously if you if you if you if you are not able to present yourself you know in a sophisticated and uh, politically uh, elevated manner right and so they they understood this right and their buildings still remain. We're in 2000. And, I mean, they, you know, the, the BJP wants to take all of them down. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, now let's, I probably want to spend the last, um, what, what time, what time is Asha? Okay, we have time. Okay. So this now becomes really, really important. Um, uh, where I, I want to get into the sort of um, the what people understood as the dina ilahi, or uh, but what Akbar called the sulhi, the word dina, he never used the word dina ilahi. But before that, I want to spend some time on some other architectural and farmans. Um, and but first is um, this was a, this was an English, this was a British English traveler to Mughal India in in the 17th century, and this is what he said. There are 88 several castes of persons under the government of the great mogul. Remember the word mogul, we, say, we have the word mogul in English, right? What does mogul mean in English? Huh? Somebody who's very wealthy. Somebody who's very wealthy. And that word entered English in the 17th century. So you can imagine how just through the genealogy or through the, uh, uh, the, the asal of the word, we can see how the West viewed Mughal India, right? It was, a, it was extremely wealthy. Right, There are 88 several castes of persons under the government of the great mogul. That is 88 several uh, sects or opinions. He, uh, he's talking about uh, different religions. And yet notwithstanding, they do all, all agree together very well. Remember, this, what, what is going on in this period in Europe at this time? Huh? But specifically, what war is going on? War, war. Jung. The Catholic Protestant War, right? There's, there's, there's a, um, you know, a, a massive battle line being drawn between uh, the Catholics in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy versus the Protestants who are now in Germany, parts of England and parts of France, right? So they were thinking about religious difference. So now he comes to the Mughal court. I believe this was also Shah Jahan's court, now Akbar's court. 
Um, but this is the earliest British or English observation that we have. And they're struck how like, we, we thought these, these Muslims uh, were extremely violent. There's 88 religions and they're all get. By the way, this is an exact quote, right? Speech in Parliament. You can, you can find this online if you just search Thomas Rowe, right? They, they do. And again, how to think about how Islam can, can unify people. This idea of karimatul of, haqq. Of, as to the point they do not persecute or molest or meddle one with the other's persuasion or opinion in that way and manner, but are all subject to the higher powers and the government takes no notice of their several opinions or, or castes, one more than another. But the powers are equally extended alike to all for their safety and protection, right? This is, uh, few people think about this, but in, specifically in the Hanafi madhab, uh, based on the hadith of the Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, if, an, if a Muslim kills a dhimmi, right, Imana Haruni, you can tell me, if a Muslim kills a dhimmi, the Muslim's life will be taken. Uh, what, what is the hadith of the Holy Prophet? Uh, that the lowest person of a Muslim society, if that person is killed, the highest person, of a Muslim, whether that's a Muslim or even a king, his life will be taken in exchange. And the Shafi'is disagree. They say you can't take a non-Muslim's life or you can't take a Muslim's life in exchange for a non-Muslim. But the Hanafis say no. And the Mughals implemented this, right? That if you, and there's a story, for example, um, and, and again, you always want to be, we need to be honest. We don't need to hide anything. I'm, we're not ashamed of anything. Um, there is a story of um, a, a graduate of a madrasa during Akbar's era um, who, uh, and then there was a Shia Mawlana also in court. And the Shia Mawlana must have said something to, to the Sunni Mawlana. The exact details are not, are, are not native to us. Anyways, the Sunni Mawlana, they, they were both about, 20, you know, 19. Remember, at, at those days, you started Alam course at the age of, you know, 9, 10. You finished at, like, you know, 17, 18. He killed him. He, uh, the, the Sunni Mulana killed the Shia Mulana. Akbar was like, what is this, right? You're not allowed to just... Nobody is allowed to just go and kill any random person in the streets, right? And Akbar had him killed, right? And no Hanafi Mufti would disagree with that. Right? You, can't, you can't just randomly kill someone because you don't like them in, in Islam, right? even if you disagree with them. Right? And this, this doesn't mean that we recognize the battle of their beliefs. Right? As, as, as someone who is proudly from Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah, I do believe Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah is the, the haqq of this world and of the heavens. But that doesn't mean that you go and commit violence to somebody who disagrees with you. That's not, you know, how many, how many Christians and Jews... Um, would come and visit the Holy Prophet والسلام, in Medina, right? We know about even the Holy Prophet brought some of the Christians into Masjid al-Nabawi, and that itself is a separate fiqh discussion. Um, this is, the, the, the second is a translation of a quote of Tuzaki Jahangiri, or the memoirs of Jahangiri, who is the son of Akbar. He says, my father of, often used to hold discussions with the wise men of every religion and sect, particularly with the Hindu pundits, he means the Hindu pundits, and learned men of India. Although he was illiterate, he had sat so much with sages and learned men in discussions that no one could guess from his appearance that he was illiterate. He comprehended the subtleties of prose and poetry so well that it is impossible to imagine any, any better, right? And something that I, I take away from this and um, as, we, as we go on to this, which is uh, the most important part of this lecture, um, is that, again, Muslims are about 4 to 5% of this land. Hindus have no idea what Islam is, right? Most of them can't read Persian yet, although many of them will start to read it by the 17th, 18th century to reckon with the Mughal Empire. Um, 
is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَا مِنْ رَسُولٍ إِلَّا بِلِسَانِ قَوْمِهِنْ يُبَيِّنَ لَهُمْ Allah has not sent a prophet except with the zuban, with the lisan of his people. Now, lisan here is such a vast word. Um, and uh, these are points that I took from Mufti Amin Kulwadiya Darul many years ago, and it was very influential for me, that he explained that lisan here means an idiom or an expression, that the Holy Prophet was sent to, un to, to explicate and to explain the values of Islam through the language and the idiom of, 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 of the people that he was sent to, right? What does Allah say in Surah Yunus? That we have sent wahi to a man right? from amongst them to understand the values. And Mufti Amin later on in a stroke of brilliance as he does said that to understand and to explain the values of Islam in the language of your qawm is a sunnah. Truly, is it not? Did not the Holy Prophet do that? Truly, did Ali Salatullah did not the Holy Prophet do that? Didn't when 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 Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab heard the Quran, did they not understand it? Right? Was it not something that was why didn't Allah send the Quran in non-Arabic? Okay, what, what, what's the verse in Surah uh, Surah Fussilat? Um wa Arabi that if we had if we had sent this Quran to um, in non-Arabic to them in a book that was not understandable to them, not legible to the Holy Prophet's qom. A non-Arabic revelation and an, Ar and an Arab prophet Right? And this is something to understand that whatever environment that you're in and it seems the Akbar one of the things that I feel that, that he was sort of trying to get at is that Muslims had been in India for 400 years they had ruled India for 400 years and only 4% of people had become Muslim. In 400 years in Iran 80% of people were Muslim. In about 300 years in Afghanistan, 60% of people were Muslim. And just about 300 years in Andalus, about 80% of Andalus was Muslim. In 400 years in India, 4% of the people are Muslim. Muslims have not been doing their job. Right? This is not a very like, oh, I see a hair from your hijab or you know, your pants are below your ankles type of Amr bil Ma'roof. This is Amr bil Ma'roof at the highest level. Where you spread the values of the Quran and the Sunnah at the at the most elevated um, stages of society, where people see Islam as the most beautiful and the most gorgeous thing in their lives that they have never seen anything like this before, as the jinns themselves said, right? Something. Um, and Quran here doesn't necessarily mean the Quran is the Mufassir. Just we have heard a very strange thing, a very beautiful thing, and the word ajab has that sort of instability and meaning. Right? And that idea is that what are you bringing? What, what, what are you bringing to the land that you're in? Have you been able to, to un first understand the values of the people, that, the qawm that you're living in? And translate that. Right? And you know, I'm finishing up an in, in, in Urdu essay called The Death of Urdu in America. Um, hopefully it will be published in the next month. And I sort of reflect on the long, um, about 50-year length of Obviously, you know, we know majority of Indians, Pakistanis can no longer read Urdu in America. I think, and that's you know, uh, but it's a reality and doesn't seem like any, any type of revival of Urdu is really going on systematically across the board. That, the, that's a separate matter. Um, is that how did the Holy Prophet translate the values from the Lohul Mahfud that Judah took from the Lohul Mahfud to his heart and then from his heart to his tongue 
from his tongue to the society around him? And how did the Sahaba take the values of the Holy Prophet ﷺ and give it to the whole world? That's something to think about. Think, think about that. How did, how, how did we do this? Right? And it doesn't just happen as we learn in India. You can keep conquering. Muslims had conquered Delhi over and over and over. So much to the point that they say that the Hindus really stopped caring. They knew that Muslims were always going to own Delhi. They didn't, doesn't mean they had to convert to Islam. They knew that the, they, they had thought that Muslims would never really care about Hindu thought and Hindu beliefs to really engage with them, to engage in dialogue, right? And I think this is really where Akbar comes in. Although I don't, agree, again, agree with how he'd done it. I think had he had more ilm, had he perhaps not been dyslexic, and I'm not trying to make fun of him for his illness, I think it, it could have been a very different thing. But what does emerge, right, is that Akbar is, why don't the Hindus know about Islam? Why have not Muslims studied Sanskrit and translated the Qur'an into Sanskrit. Why? We've translated the Qur'an into English. Nobody has a problem with it. English is originally a pagan language, right? English is not, you know, only in the 16th centuries did English really take on this Christian uh, sheen with the translation of the King James Bible in the 16th century. So English is, why, why but not okay with translating the Qur'an into Sanskrit? So it, English is okay if it's European and American, but you can't translate the Qur'an into Sanskrit? Is there, who, who said, who said that, right? No, why, why, why did that not happen? Why, you know, why, why was the Qur'an not translated into Indian languages before Akbar, right? And this, this, this becomes something to really think about so that everyone, that only you get to go to Jannah, nobody else gets to go to Jannah but you. No, as Muftamin tells us, that don't be bakhil with who gets to go to paradise, right? You want, you want to be khair kha, you want everyone to go to paradise. Isn't that what rahmatul alameen means? Isn't that a sunnah of the Holy Prophet that you want everyone to go to paradise? Right? But you have to do that somehow. You have to translate. Right? And the act of this act of translation that doesn't just happen between words, but it also happens from the holy, from the last revelation of the Holy Prophet into a society. How do you bring the values of the Quran into the society? So what and I and I have to give all of this because again, people talk about Akbar in very simplistic, very reductive ways. If you ask them, what is the Akbar Nama? They won't tell you. But at least under, at least read this and then form a judgment. No? Pahle kitab to parlo, pir, you know, aap hokam de sakte. Right? Bina parna, pir, you saying that, oh, he's this kafir, heretic, fasid. At least read and then make a judgment. Right? And again, I'm not telling you guys what to think. I want to give you as much information as I can and then you guys make a judgment. But I, but I do think that some of the things that Akbar did were so important for Muslims in India. And one of that is translating Islamic text into Sanskrit and translating and translating Sanskrit text into Farsi, right? Because what, what, what happens with that? What happens is that Muslims understand who they're living around, right? What is, who, who, who is around you, right? What are their values? What are their systems? And one of the most beautiful things, I, I, I had a chance um, to read um, and the, so what, one of the Hindu sacred texts is the Bhagavad Gita. It's about a 50,000 um, uh, Sanskrit text. Does anybody know how long it took Akbar to have it translated? Only 16 months. And he had a whole team just working on it. He had, he had ulama. He had, um, and he had Hindu pundits sitting in one room. right? Probably something that looked like this. This is a miniature painting, by the way. Um, and to talk about this, and the Ramza Nama, he, he called it the Ram, Ramza in Farsi means war, the book of war, because it's a war is about all these various 
uh, Hindu uh, with these Ram and Shiva, etc., etc. I don't even feel good taking their names. But Nakhle Kufr Kufr Nabashad, right? Um, and uh, you know, uh, we st- we you know we still say Laat and Azanamana to critique them, but you know, we don't praise them obviously in any shape or fashion. But what was super interesting is that um, the book Ramzanama, I had the chance to read the introduction with my Mughal professor here in Chicago, and it reads like an Islamic text. So what Akbar was able to do, and it's because Farsi by that time was an Islamic language, right? And, and you know, and I, I make this point a lot, the word English is not an Islamic language yet, but perhaps it could be, right? Where, um, you know, thou- tens of thousands of air. Farsi, by the way, is a 60% Arabic language, right? 60% of Farsi is really just Fusha Arabic. Um, and anybody who has studied it will, will, will absolutely agree, if, if not more. And um, uh, when you read it, it just reads like an Islamic text. So now when the Hindus are reading, reading these translations of their own texts in Farsi, Tawheed is right there in front of them. And in the translation... One of the things that it's not clear if Akbar said it or not, but one of the things that was clear to me is that there's no worship to any, any of these, of these uh, really figures like Ram and Shiva. It's, the word Tawheed comes so frequently. Imagine that in a Hindu scripture, the word Tawheed being one of the most common words. Tawheed and Tahqiq are, the, are some of the two, two most common words in this translation. right? And imagine, right? and again, that's how you can understand how, why a lot of Hindus start being like, hey, Maybe this religion has some truth to offer. Because again, there was, there was a lot of arrogance from the Brahmins, for sure. Especially in Banaris and, and Ujjain and these Hindu centers. There was a lot of arrogance, for sure. They, they thought, what is this Arab religion doing in our land? But once they read a lot of these translations, their minds switch immediately. right? And they, they start considering Islam. Many, many, many. It's, it's so wild. Um, when, I, when I came to learn of this fact, is that... Especially in, in Mughal historical texts, we don't have as many records of Hindu Dalits or Shastras converting to Islam as much as we have of Hindu Brahmins converting to Islam, which is obviously not going to be the case today, right? Because again, Muslims, I don't see them engaging in a really serious manner, right, with the world around them in, in the way that this happened, right? In the way that Imam Ghazali dealt with Greeks, uh, with the Greeks, right? Imagine Imam Ghazali doesn't do that. Right? Doesn't reckon with that. What, what if he says that this is all just kufr? Don't even look at it. Don't even read it. But he didn't do that. How much, and how much do we honor him today because of that? Isn't that a maqbuliyya? Right? Isn't that an acceptance to deal with this? Right? And why haven't Muslims dealt with these other civilizations around us in a meaningful way? And I think one of the most beautiful passages in the Quran that te- at least teaches me this. Sorry, I don't know if I'm going to any tangents here. But I'm just trying to help you guys at least give you my thoughts on this. Right? And you guys can totally disagree. Please feel free to disagree. I, I don't mind at all. Um, um, is the story in Surah Kahf where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the two brothers. Right? One, was extre- you know, one was given a garden. One was given extreme wealth and opulence. Um, and the brother goes and speaks to him. Right? And every verse, please understand that every verse in the Quran holds so much qudra. Is an ayah. What does it mean to be an ayah? Right? Even, even, you know, I don't know if this is problematic to say, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and I'm not saying the ayahs, but I'm saying my, how I understand this ayah is, is that one of the signs of God is the, very, is the various languages in the world. Doesn't Allah say that in the Quran? All the various languages in the world is an ayah. I'm just quoting the Quran to you. Right? But anyways, coming back 
to this. The brother goes and tries to convince him. But the word Allah uses is so fascinating to me. Allah says, The brother was trying to do muhawara, was trying to do dialogue with him. Why does Allah mention a story of two brothers just in the Quran? Truly, why, you know, this is, this is, you know, Iqbal has a very emotional reflection in Farsi about don't read the Quran just for janazas. He says, don't read the Quran, don't read Surah Yasin just for janazas. Read the Quran to build a civilization. Think about that, right? Don't read the Quran just for janazas. Read, read it to produce something. Um, right? And this idea of, of, of that dialogue, and that happened. Didn't say that Umar have discussed with the, what's his name? Sophronios, who was the patriarch of Jerusalem, the, 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 the Syriac Christian priest in the year 634 when Sayyidina um, Abu Ubaidah and Sayyidina Khalid ibn Walid conquered Jerusalem. Right, again, this is important, is that you are living, right, in a world around you. What's the ayah? What does that ta'aruf mean? Knowing is not a good translation, by the way. People translate it as that you may know each other. This, you know each other. No, the ta'araf is a very, this scale tafa'ul is a very intense knowing. And it's knowing is alima. This is arafa, is truly to recognize someone almost paradigmatically, holistically. Right? Anyway, this, um, I just want to spend some time. I remember when I was taking my first Mughal class in college, uh, this, this painting art or teacher spent a lot of time on. Um, so that's Akbar. Um, you can see him sitting. Um, that, that's his main historian, who is the author of this book, the Akbar Nama. Abul Fazl was his name. Ten volumes. Extremely, extremely brilliant um, writer of Arabic and Farsi. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> you ask someone today to write ten volumes in Arabic, and you know, let alone Farsi, and probably won't be able to. Right? Not even you know, very few, very few even Arab scholars today can write ten volumes in Arabic, let alone an Indian Muslim. You know, living in 1600s. Think about that. What does it mean to produce someone who can do something like that to achieve that? Um, anyways, uh, next to next to those two Mughal historians are two Catholic Portuguese priests, padres. Right? Um, we don't know what texts are there lying on the ground. Um, there is a farman being written. You guys know what a farman is. I'll, sh I'll show you guys. Or um, Uh, yeah, so this, this is like a this is an actual farman of Akbar, by the way, that is still preserved. Um, we'll speak about this a little bit later. Um, and uh, there, it, we can't really tell who the non-Muslims are, but they're supposed to be Hindus, uh, especially the Brahmins, because they could read and write the Christians and Jains. Akbar created a lot of dialogue with Jains. And obviously you have the two, uh, Sunni, uh, one Sunni and one Shia scholar there. And But one of the things that Akbar is trying to do is to get everyone, come let's talk. What, you're going to sit in your corner and not tell anyone about what your, what, what, your, what your religion is, what your ethics are, what your morals are, as Mufti Amin tells us, teaches us. Let us contribute to the world. But in order to do that, you have to know the world. Know the, and, know your, and then know your religion too, so that you can, you can translate that into the world that you live in. Much, much of our, much of Western philosophy today um, is really either just translation of Christian or Jewish values into quote-unquote secular philosophy. Why have Muslims not been able to do that in that same way? Right? Um, 
but I do. I don't. I don't want to paint. I, I don't. I don't want to paint um, Akbar as this, you know, really religiously uh, inclined Muslim. There are really problematic things that I have seen and I have read that I'm not okay with. I am not okay with. And you know, we have a farman that he gave to his son Murad that at some point um, he he believed that in many ways that modern Ismailis do that Islam was really just an internal thing, was a ruhani thing, and at, he said that. You know, what's the point of praying namaz? And one or two mushrooms even stopped from praying namaz at some point in his life. It seems he retracted from that later on. But I think what we can also understand is that Akbar was on a journey. And it's not a journey that many of us really want to go through. But I think that living in a land where Muslims had not yet built themselves up, he couldn't really find his footing. And he, and he you know, really went back and forth in between. As I said, in the beginning, he was a very you know, aggressive Naqshbandi, right? Had, had a Shia scholar, a dead Shia scholar removed from his grave to be buried somewhere else, right? And then later on, he commands a masjid not to be uh, performed namaz, right? Or at another, you know, and uh, Iqbal's judgment on Akbar, on Akbar is super interesting, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Or for example, this masjid. This masjid was built by Rajaman Singh, who never converted to Islam. And in, in the waqf, Right? Because every masjid in India was a waqf. In the, this is an 18th century picture uh, um, drawn by a British artist. He said that I built this masjid as a way to curry favor with Akbar Padishah. And I feared that if I built a temple, he would have destroyed it. No. Obviously, what does this show? Right? What, what this shows is that, like many of us, um, Akbar was a very complicated human being. Right? And... Um, there, there's a lot of troubling things and there's a lot of good things, right? And, and one, of, one of the phenomenal things is that he, he devoted an incredible amount of money to ulama and masajid. And this is one example of that. Uh, the translation is on the next page, but I just wanted to show you what a document of that looked like. This is, this is Farsi. This is Shikasta Farsi, right? Um, it's a very challenging dialect to read, you know, uh, um, because... Um, everything's connected to each other. In Arabic, the, the words are spaced out, but here it's just one line because you can't pick up the brush pen, right? These are very uh, finely uh, bristled pens, right? So you can't pick it up because it'll, it'll smudge the paper. Um, but this was a grant given to the grandfather of the person who founded the Darsan Izami. Imagine that. The, 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 you know, the curriculum that all Mulanas have to study in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. The grandfather of him, the first farman or the first amount of cash funds that were devoted to him was given to him by Akbar. And this is, this is a translation, right, of that. Farman of Jalaluddin invocation, huwal ghani. They always, at every Mughal farman, they would use the name of Allah, huwal ghani, right? Farman of Jalaluddin Muhammad Akbar Badshah Ghazi. The glorious obedience extracting farman has obtained the dignity of being issued that 2,600 bighas in the revenue-paying village as specified in the zimin or the back of the farman in the paragana of Fatahpur under the administration of the Sarkar Lucknow, which is in the occupation of the learned legalist, the worshipful, the pious Sheikh Hafiz teacher, son of Fazlullah Qazi, Fazlullah Qazi of the town of Sihali. So if Akbar is some mulhid, you know, kafir fasik, why is he giving so much money to the... By, by the way, this amount of money, one, um, this Aligarh scholar did amount, one silver rupee in Mughal India was worth about 45, 50 US dollars. So it was about 40 bushels of grain, right? Which we can calculate today is about 55, 60 US dollars. So this is about 300,000 US dollars per year. 
right? And you, you know, the Farangi Mahal Fam can only come about with a large amount of patronage that's coming from the Mughal state. So think about that, right? That our curriculum is based, right, on one Farman. Um, I think I see I see a lot of people yawning, so I'm gonna try to cut it short. Um, you know, uh, I know you guys aren't excited about Mughal history as I am, but uh, I did want to spend more time on this to to, to show the, the the administrative, I think, brilliance of Akbar. Um, and in many ways, the Mughal state has to rely on Akbar's administration really for the rest of the Mughal state. In fact, the British seem to just really duplicate what Akbar does. And again, this is not justifying a lot um, of what Akbar had said, especially during his confused era. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand what he did administratively. And we can separate those two fields. Um, so you have the Badshah, you have the Wakil, you have the uh, Mir Bakhshi, who's in charge of revenue. You have the Mustofi, who is the person collecting from Istofa, Yistofi, who's collecting revenue. Um, you have the Mir uh, Sipa, the Subedar, you have the Fojdar, you have the Amil, you have the Muqaddam, you have the Kortwal, you have the Waqai Numai, which is the sort of news reporter. Um, sorry, Waqai Nawis. You have the Chaudhry all the way at the bottom. So a lot of people who are named Chaudhry, you can especially sit in Punjab and Bengal, you all the name Chaudhry. Those people likely came from... They were in charge of a, a selective village. And then, uh, on top of them, you had likely a zamindar. You had multiple chaudhrys under one zamindar. And then many zamindars you had under uh, one jagirdars. And many jagirdars were under one mansabdar. And then you also had the tahsildar. And the, fo the fojdar was the head of a fort. You had the court wall, which is sort of just like today. You have the modern police officer, whatever their version of a police officer was, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wish I could just spend three hours with you guys on this. But, you know, um, unfortunately... <laughs> What are you, you going to do? <laughs> I, wish, I wish people cared about this stuff, but that's, you know. Yeah, yeah. For, this is the first step to that, inshallah. Let, truly, let us, let us think about what, what was this world? What was this universe? Right? The, most of us are Desi here. This is the world that all of our ancestors lived in. Right? Um, what sorry, what time is it? 710. Okay, we'll do 15 more minutes. Is that okay? Or should we should we just cut it here? Should we continue? Okay, I see. I just saw a lot of people yawning. So I was like, I get it. This is really boring. Okay, okay. Um, yeah. Chalo. Uh, as Shalil used to call his intensity in Farsi, Joshu Khorosh. Joshu Khorosh. You see that a lot through his maktubah. And remember, Shaulullah died and lived as a Mughal, as a Mughal intellectual, right? He lived at the peak and he died when it was all slipping. And nobody, and hopefully with Mona Harun um, and Hamza, we'll be able to just have a lecture on Shaulullah under the Mughal era. What was his relationship? All of that. And I think it would be really beautiful. Um, this is a translation of the introduction to the, to, to the Bhagavad Gita that Akbar did. And I just want you to read it to sort of, because again, people are like, Dina ilahi. That's it. That's what, they just say this, Akbar, Dina ilahi, and there's nothing else. That's it. Isn't that what people do? Or they'll just say Mughli Azam, right? That's it. There's nothing. There's no conversation about anything, no books, nothing, no farmans, what language he spoke, anything like that. There's nothing like that. They just say, Akbar, Dina ilahi, uh, Mughli Azam, uh, Mughals are Ayash. That's it, right? That's, 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 that's at least... That's what I heard growing up, right? Which is so wild to think about. You know, I, I spoke to Mulana Bilal today. Um, I hope he forgives me for saying this. Um, 
uh, Montpelier is very, very important to how I understand, um, especially the intellectual culture of the Mughals. I don't think there's really any scholar, and I think he serves on the board here. I don't think there's really any scholar who understands South Asian um, intellectual culture and the way that Mona Bilal does. But I had a conversation with him today. Um, the great muhaddith, Abdul Haq Dahlawi, rahmatullah alayhi. Um, uh, I, know, I don't know if anybody, but really, the, truly, uh, before Shaulullah, he is the greatest hadith scholar in India. I think we can say that, right? He has, a, he, he, he has introduction um, to the Mishkatul Masabih. Um, you know, uh, he, he, has, he has a whole treatise on Sufis and ulama. I mean, his importance is so renowned. If it weren't for Shaulullah, he probably would, would be the most renowned muhaddith today. Hana Mawlana Harun, we can probably say that. Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi. If it weren't for Shaulullah, right? That was his stature. Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi lived under Akbar. And Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi, in one of, in one of the ends um, of his text, mentions that... Um, all of this is possible because of Badashah Islam Akbar Ghazi. Now, Mina uh, and I, as as Manabila, who you know, truly what what a brilliant teacher. Uh, he said that how, how much do we know that Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi had of Akbar? There's Sulhay Kolar Din Ilahi, which is a fair point. I'm not sure, and I and I and I want you guys to make sure that you know his his his. Um, what, what, what he said is manifest to us because I don't want to just give you guys information without sort of giving you more background. And that is important, right? Um, that perhaps he didn't know, right? And we're, we're not saying that Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi sort of justified anything that he did. Um, but the second point that I wanted to say um, is that um, Akbar's Sulhay Kul, by the way, the word Dinilahi is never used throughout this whole 10 volume thing. The word Sulhay Kul is used. Sulhay Kul means peace for everyone. That's what it means. Right? Anybody who speaks Arabic or Farsi here will know that. Sulhaiq just means peace for everyone. Um, and what he meant for it to be was a Sufi order. He meant for it to be Ibn al-Arabi Sufi order. Um, and I don't want to get into trouble, so I'm not going to talk about Ibn al-Arabi here. But um, that's what Akbar meant it to be, and that's why he never propagated it. There were about at max 18 people who were part of it. That's it. Maybe 22, depending on where, where you read, but that's it. 22 people. You know, um, and never propagated it. When other people saw him, they just saw him as Abdul Haq Muhaddad Dahlawi. And Manabilal told us that, you know, he probably, uh, Akbar was not very public about this, right? People don't have access to these texts um, in the same way that, that, that we do today. So um, that becomes important, right? That perhaps he saw it as an experiment for what he was trying to do. He saw it, by the way, under the guise of Islam. He never saw himself outside of Islam, but he thought that perhaps we could bring in other non-Muslims by creating a new language, right? And I think that's where a lot, we, we, we get lost in mistranslation. I think that's at least how I sort of deal with it and what, what I've read. Um, and this is not justifying um, him or not trying to indict, you know, Hazrat Abdul Haq, may, you know, may my life be sacrificed for his intellectual contributions. But truly, you know, um, the fact that he said that is still significant, right? I think we can say Abdul Haq Muhammad Dahlawi after Ahmed said Hindi. Now, Ahmed said Hindi then becomes important because Ahmed said Hindi was part of the more direct intellectual circles. Um, and uh, Abdul Haq Muhammad said Hindi did criticize Akbar, right? And Akbar did put him in prison. There's no doubt about that. I'm not denying that. Um, but Ahmed said Hindi and Abdul Haq Muhammad Dahlawi being the two leading Mughal intellectuals seem to have varying interpretations on what Akbar was trying to do, right? And we shouldn't be academically dishonest and only take Ahmed said Hindi's opinion, but we should take both and look at it and then assess it and then come to a conclusion, right? And I will say this for sure. And also, 
it doesn't seem like Ahmed said Hindi said that Akbar had left Islam. It said that he was doing a vast bid'ah, 100%. So that's, that's something to also consider, right? Um, um, very briefly, yeah, this is, this is a translation of the, of the introduction that, uh, that Akbar did. Um, and Abul Fazl, who is the historian here, is saying this about Akbar, that Akbar decided to explore the differences between Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Therefore, in realizing this, he decided to translate the authentic books of the different groups, into another language, so that both groups could have the pleasure of benefiting from the perfect knowledge, thus forgetting their enmity and hostility and seeking the divine truth. In this way, they could learn about their flaws and shortcomings, and therefore endeavor to correct their manners in the best way possible. Also, there are some groups of people who are ignorant and excessive in amusement and pleasure, people from different social groups have come along and introduced themselves as scholars and have trained the masses under false teachings and practices. In fact, this, this pretentious bunch, whether due to their lack of knowledge or foolishness, according to their lust and greed, have hidden the authentic books of advice, words and teachings, teachings of sages and the weighty actions um, of the ancients and instead pose them in a different way. Abu al-Fazl is referring to the Hindu Brahmin. They didn't allow anyone to, they didn't allow their own Hindus to read their texts. They would just sit in Banadas and they would allow anyone else to read their texts. When books of different groups are translated in a way that is simple, clear, and pleasant, many credulous people will be able to reach the truth and thus be saved from being misguided or misdirected and led astray by the false interpretations of the interfering and ignorant people who pretend to be wise. Therefore, it is an important task to translate the Mahabharata, which is about the many skills of kings and covers many principles, including the smaller issues and beliefs of India. In fact, there is no other book more comprehensive and well-known and detailed than this one, i.e. in India, although indeed all astute intellectuals and linguists have gathered and united to pursue the task of translating this book skillfully and justly. Indeed, in addition, some biased, irreligious people and leaders of derivative practice in India think their beliefs are the best ever. Therefore, they consider their ridiculous, their ridiculous views as free from any defect, and they keep imitating others and instructing the gullible with their own teachings without pursuing any further study, resulting in the distribution of false notions. They regard the true followers of Muhammad's religion, والسلام, whose respectable views and the true essence of their sciences they know nothing about. Again, Abu al-Fasr was referring to the Hindu Brahmins, right? How they didn't take Islam seriously because it wasn't given to them. It wasn't, so how can we, how can we say that they were mukallaf in that way? And I know the, the Maturidi position, I'm not, I'm not trying to discredit that, but if they didn't know what the Holy Prophet was about, who is responsible for that, right? We are, right? And that, that's what they were trying to change. And they did, they did change it truthfully. And I do believe that had Muslims had about a hundred more years before the British come, I do think that India would have been majority Muslim today. Had we just had 100 more years? I mean, 40 per, 4 to 40% is wild. That's a wild thing. Had we just had 100 more years? These efforts, you know, and think about what, what are we doing today, right? To, to present, as, you know, Mufti Amin has, and Mona Bilal have taught us so beautifully over and over again, right? To present Islam um, in a way that is meaningful, but is true to us and true to them as well. But... Um, um, let's, uh, I can probably only do a little bit more. Uh, 
I just wanted to show you um, Akbar's building of the city of Lahore. And I don't, I don't know who anybody who's Pakistani have been to Lahore. And truly, what a beautiful and gorgeous. I was just there in August. Um, I'm, you know, my, my, my parents are from India. I spent um, about three weeks in Lahore and I was so moved. And even though of so much really ugly industrialization and um, the, the neglect of many of the previous governments, it's still a beauty that is so, 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 so beautiful. May Allah preserve it and um, always keep it under his protection. Um, and uh, Delhi was very similar, but look, look how the city is structured, right? You have the commercial center, you have the masjids, you have the workshops, the Ahlul Harfa, right? You have, a, you know, the, the whole city, there's a thamleen to it, there's a system to it, right? And Muslims have sort of lost this idea to create, you could, today, sometimes what I've seen, some Muslims will just create thamleen without any meaning to it. Uh, the systemization or the thought underlying it has to have some meaning to it, right? With Akbar and this was Lahore during the Mughal era. And what, what a beautiful city. What a beautiful city. This was drawn in the 17th century. What, what a beautiful city. And the fact that Muslims can create such beauty, right? You can, you can see, you can see um, the water, the trees, the houses, that nothing should be, right? The Hanif and Fuqaha say that no building should be higher than a masjid. Isn't, isn't that true? Isn't, isn't that true? I mean, when you come, when you walk into the city, don't you want to convert to Islam? Don't you want to see what these people are all about? That as Muslims, how, again, how Mulana Bilal and Mufti Amin show us so much is how do we create beauty? I mean, a really wonderful conversation that me and Mulana Bilal had that, you know, he said so well that when we talk about mental health, um, mental health, you know, um, can't just be that we're trying to cure, but rather that we try to prevent. And when you have so much beauty in a city where you have um, people are in tune with nature, that they're in tune with the ayat of Allah, where you have a beautiful masjid, right? Where um, people are not sort of um, uh, separated from their families, right? And one of the things that you, that you see, but I, I feel like people for, forget to appreciate is that, and, and for those people who are born and raised in Indian Pakistan will appreciate, is that these cities, right? These little muhallas, as we say, Every home is super near each other. A family would have their own quarter. Do you know how much love a child receives when your mamu is there, your khalu is there, your nani is there, your nana is there, your dada is there? So much touch as a child you receive. And how many, and I, you know, I'm no expert in this, as, but as Mulan Bilal teaches us, that like, why, why wouldn't you have a very strong mental sense of yourself when you, give, when you receive so much love as a child, right? And so this city as a town is not only important aesthetically, but also spiritually and also cognitively, mentally, for your, and for your own mental and cognitive health. And where Muslims can live and promote beauty in the world. Inna Allah jameel, yuhabbul jamal. Allah himself is beauty. Um, we'll, we'll stop there. I had, you know, a little bit more to say. But um, really quickly, I just wanted to read a passage um, from this book. Uh, just so that people can get a flavor of what, like, can, can we turn on the, actually, no, 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 it's green, I'm turning the lights. Um, this is Abu al-Fazl was writing on the virtues of Humayun, you know, may Allah have mercy on him. And um, just so that we, again, we have a, what, what kind of history were they writing? What language were they using? So he says, Okay. 
و دیوان ترکی آن حضرت در نهایت فصاحت و عذوبت واقع شده و مزامین تازه در آن مندرج است و کتاب مصنوی که مبین نام دارد در تصنیف است مشهور و نزد زبندان این لغت به مزیت تحسین مذکور رساله والد خاجه احرار را که دردان ایست از بحر معرفه در سلک نظم کشیده اند و بغایت مدبو آمده و واقعات خود را از ابتدای سلطنت خود تا حال تا حال ارتحال از قرار واقع به عبارت فسیح و بلیغ نوشته اند که دستور العملی است به جهت فرمان روایان عالم, عالم و قانونی است در آموختن اندیشه های دروس و فکرهای صحیح برای تجربت پذیران و دانش اموزان روزگار بر هی سیز He was also outstanding in the acquired and learning accomplishments of the age in poetry, I'm talking about Humayun In poetry and prose, he attained a high level, particularly in Turkish poetry. His Majesty's Turkish divan is extremely eloquent and articulate, and it contains fresh, fresh conceits. The Methnawi, called Mubin, is a well-known composition and is mentioned with praise by the knowledgeable. He versified Khaja Ahrad, the famous Naqshbandi Hanafi, Sufi, Waladiyya treaties, a pearl from the sea of knowledge, and it is extremely pleasing. He wrote his own experiences from the time he became ruler until his death in an expressive and eloquent style, and it is a handbook for rulers of the world and a manual for teaching correct ideas and sound thoughts to students. By imperial command in the 36th year of his reign, when the imperial banners were returning from Kashmir and Kabul, this manual of good fortune, fortune was translated into Persian by Mirza Khan, uh, son of Bayram Khan, so that its most special effulgence might reach the generality of those thirsty for drops of felicity and knowledge, and so that its hidden treasures might come into the plain view of those deprived of knowledge of it. Jazakallah khair. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, can't, can't always just get a compliment, you know, you have to... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you can't, you can't, you can't do Mughal history if you don't know Farsi, right? The the only the, the only three Mughal kings spoke spoke Urdu: Shah Alam the second, um, his son Akbar the second, and his son Bahadur Shah Zafar the second. So, funny question: Why do you think historically uh, Akbar got is like pinned with Zainal and like from what you're saying, you know, 18th, 18th to 20th century? Yeah, and he wasn't like there was a agenda or whatever you think, why do you think that got pinned on his legacy? Yeah, um, again, uh, and I probably should have mentioned this, is that the way that we understand the Mughals is almost copy-paste of how the East India Training Company understood it because they were the first people to write about the Mughals in English. And um, uh, so, for example, Mughal Azam, right? It's a very famous movie in India written, directed by this guy, I think, Kale Asif. Um, these are people who are not reading our history, they're reading British history books. And same thing as well, right, with uh, Savarkar, who founded RSS, the, the, the predecessor to the BJP. They are just reading these British translations. So really, you know, when you think about someone who is just, they might, you know, their color, they might look Indian, or their, their face, they might look Indian or Pakistani, um, but their thought is extremely British, right? And this is what it means to, um, to uh, lose your civilization, lose your history, right? And which is why the Quran emphasizes the majority of the Quran is about previous prophets. Very little of the Quran is about the signs of the day of judgment, right? Very little. How, much, how many times do we hear the story of Sayyidina Musa alayhi salatu wasalam? How many times do we hear the story of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salatu wasalam? 
Why do we tell these stories? So that your heart can become strong. Right? And to understand who, who, what, what is going on in the world. Right? Allah is teaching us to value history is a Quranic act. Is a Quranic act. And the hundreds, if not thousands of untouched historical books sitting in Hyderabad, sitting in you know, the Rampur Library is a travesty. And I... You know, if if our pucker happens on the day of judgment for not doing our job to give this to the world, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what what we'll say, but um, it's so sad that you know um, we we did not preserve that in that way that they spent so much money just on the discipline of history, Muslim kings, whatever Ottoman king, Safavid king, Mamluk king, Mughal king, just the preservation of history, right? And um, as Muslims, we look to the past, right? For us, the perfect generation is the generation of the Holy Prophet, that's in the past. And even this idea of past and the future, very linear, that's not, that's, that's not what the Quran teaches us. The Quran teaches us, The Quran says that history rotates. So, isn't that, isn't that what, uh, that's, isn't, isn't that what Allah, so, you know, the New York Times will say, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. I say that's also false. Um, because it rotates, right? And that this idea of, of that, almost like a globe, right? Nudawiluha, nudawiluha. Allah, that's the, the exact word that Allah uses. Nudawiluha bayna nas. But, uh, you know, I wish, uh, sorry, I, I'm not, I, again, I'm not trying to tanqeed or criticize anyone. Um, I just, I, uh, I, I think I'm just sad and sometimes hurt that, um, uh, that how much qurbani that they gave is, goes unrecognized um, as, as you know, Indian or Pakistani Muslims. Um, I know, for example, that myself, my family would have never been Muslim um, if it not were for this empire. I know, I, I know that for an almost certain fact that we were converts and that happened almost 100, 200 years ago, right? And I, I obviously want to be grateful, right? That we are, you know, when the Holy Prophet said, alayhi salatu wasalam, that man lam nas lam The Holy Prophet, alayhi salatu wasalam, didn't say that the Holy Prophet didn't say that whoever thinks, uh, whoever doesn't think living people doesn't think Allah. The Holy Prophet just said whoever doesn't think people. He left it عام, مطلق, general. Don't we, doesn't Allah say in the Quran, رَبَّنَا خَفْلَنَا وَلِإِخْوَانِنَا الَّذِينَ سَبَقُونَا بِالْإِيمَانِ That oh Allah, forgive those who preceded us in faith. Right? And as, as Muslims, you know, if we don't have our turah, if we don't have a heritage to look back on, Right, as Taha, and, I, and I mentioned this in the beginning of my first lecture of why we do this, right? Is that our, our, our past, our turath, has given birth to us in the way that a mother has given birth to us. And in the same way, it's wajib for us to honor our mother, so too must we honor our past. That doesn't mean that problematic things um, where Akbar, for example, um, at some point in his life, um, tried to ban uh, the physical act of namaz, that we let that go. No, we critique him for that. We say that was wrong. That was, you know, bordering uh, disbelief, right? Absolutely, we, we call that out, right? And we don't, we don't have to sugarcoat anything. I'm not ashamed of anything. I'm okay to talk about anything. And every Muslim needs to be like that, right? Again, he's not perfect. Only the Holy Prophet is, alayhi salatu wasalam. And the people closest to him, khayr al qarni thumma al ladhina yiluna, thumma al ladhina yiluna. You know, sorry, yeah. Yeah, some of my scholars say that, uh, you know, um, uh, we should not say that uh, Dina Ibrahim, uh, religion of Ibrahim, just to have peace with the Jews and Christians. Absolutely, absolutely. So just like uh, when he created Dine Ilahi, 
Sulhai kul, Sulhai kul. Yeah, yeah. But it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He did, he did. But again, Abdul Hakim Muhammad Dahlawi doesn't have problems yeah, but with. Maybe that was in the earlier stage. Maybe. No, 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 no. Even until uh, end. Uh, I mean, in one of his later texts, yeah. But again, uh, what Mona Bilal said rings true. We don't know how much he knew, but I mean, if you were part of that Mughal intellectual sphere, why would Ahmed said Hindi know, and why would Abdul Hakim Muhammad Dahlawi not know? I mean, and uh, yeah, but you know, to, to your point, that's fair. And perhaps he thought that again, um, you know, perhaps he can be considered ma'adur or excused because of the fact that he couldn't read. But, um, you know, and also the fact that, um, you know, Muslims had not yet built something very intellectual in India to that point, you know. When you say that, the children they respond closer to the Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it led to that effort. And we have many, many, you know, um, anecdotes of even Abu Fazl talks about how we used to pray namaz and, you know, um, in public, right? And Imam Kasani Badayu Sanar says that if you, if you see someone praying namaz with jama'ah, you can't call him a kafir. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he necessarily did Thoba, um, because I don't. I think he saw it as an extension of Islam. Um, and again, he as I, as we read the introduction there, right? The religion of, of 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 Mustafa of the Holy Prophet, right? And he saw it in that line. Um, an another problematic thing that he did, you can call it problematic, was that he um, he made some of the major muftis call himself the Mujtahid of the air, so that he could legislate. Um, you know, and it's. It, it is what it is. But I mean, why would he do that if he didn't care about Islam? He could have just said that I don't care what the Mufti say. You're all going to prison. Why, why would he do that? You know, so perhaps he thought and, it, you know, it, it wasn't the best way. Um, and sometimes, you know, as my Mughal professor said, if, if Shah Jahan, um, and I do think that Shah Jahan was a slightly, um, I think he was a better king than Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb was a better military general. But I think had Shah Jahan and Aurangzeb been first and then Akbar later, I think, uh, you know, perhaps we, you know, we would not have to deal with this sulhaikul, right? Um, and I think because Akbar is new to this, he doesn't know what he's doing. This is, India is a new land. No Muslim has really done anything that, you know, deeply other than maybe Alauddin Khilji and Furusha, but even then it's not really substantial, right? And they haven't left much writing um, and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's yeah, I, I, you know, I'm not apologizing for him. Um, you know, only Allah can judge him. None of us can judge him. Um, you know, and we, crit we criticize the wrong that he did. Um, if I was there, um, I would have definitely, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know if I would have definitely, but it definitely, it, you know, it, it internally, and I, I would have hoped that we all would have criticized that and divorced ourselves from that, from, from those very problematic acts. Um, you know, for me, it's Islam, you know, and uh, I don't, you know, I don't, Akbar is not a, you know, a uh, uh, person who's revealed to who's not an angel or anything like that, um, you know, and people have done problematic things throughout history. So, yeah, and um, I'm glad that at least we can have an honest conversation about it. I'm glad that we can, you know, revive some of these debates. I'm, I'm so happy, I'm so grateful so much to Osman for allowing this to happen. You know, and as I mentioned yesterday, that like, I don't know of any other masjid in America that's really willing to have a conversation about this stuff, even though Muslims in India are being killed over this, right? 
over this history. Isn't that, isn't that true? Don't they mention these kings before they, before they slaughter them or before they lynch them? How many videos, how many iPhone videos do we have of that stuff? You know, and, you know, may, you know, um, just, just as an act, as a Quranic act to understand our history, that Allah, this is a taqdeer, right? This is a taqdeer of Allah. Allah has willed this, no? Right? Isn't this a taqdeer of Allah for us to, this is just one taqdeer of Allah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I skipped that just because um, I don't I didn't want to exhaust anyone. It's, it's a lot of information. Um, so remember how Humayun was exiled from from India by the Afghans. Um, the Iranian king Shah Tasmat told him that look, I get it. The Afghans are Muslims, but you know, um, and he's talking about not talking about Afghans as a poem, but he's talking about the Afghans who are living in India that you're better trying to conciliate yourself to the Rajputs because the Afghans are going to backstab you again. And I think that trauma of, um, of what happened to Humayun with the Afghans and the three major, the, the two major qoms in India at that time were the Raj, or the, the two major military qoms at that time in India were the Rajputs and the, and the Pashtuns, right? And you had to basically choose one. And I think Akbar was like, what happened? I remember Akbar was born in exile, lived the first half of his life, basically um, very poor with his father, and then somehow, you know, and I think that trauma and we need to make, uh, ensure that we, you know, Akbar is also a human being. I'm sure just as we inherit things and baggage from our parents and our grandparents, I'm sure that was inherited. Um, but also, um, I think what's also really wild is that uh, after Akbar defeats them in battle, they become extremely loyal to the Mughal state, extremely loyal um, up until the end. In fact, um, when Shivaji emerges in Aurangzeb's time, it's Rajput generals who are trying to who are trying to capture and execute Shivaji, Raja Raja Jai Singh and Raja Jaswant Singh in the mid 17th century. Yeah, sorry, you had a question. So no, I think sorry, just the person behind you. Yeah, I just saw him raising his hand. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So I mean, it is said that you know, like the conversion of Muslims that happened, like you said, right, 40% of. Yeah. Mostly the credit goes to the Sufi Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, def definitely heard that in college, um, you know, and people say Muhammadin Shishti, first of all, Muhammadin Shishti predated the Mughals. Um, I think how, how, at least how I interpret that is that definitely in certain areas, um, especially in, in Bengal and in Lahore, um, there is a very dominant Sufi presence. But you have to remember, the Sufis can only live there because the Muslims have conquered the region. Right, and that, that the Sufis, a lot of them, especially it's called, so obviously in Islam we have the waqf system. In India we called it madade ma'ash. Um, in India the, the word ma'ash has only preserved in the word badmash, unfortunately. But madade ma'ash meant the help of, ma'ash just means living. A.K. badmash, dusrahe naik ma'ash, right? But naik ma'ash we haven't preserved, we've only preserved badmash, right? I don't know if I can say that word on the mic here, so I'm not trying to be fahish or anything, may Allah forgive me. Um, I was called that a lot growing up, so, you know, um, so, uh, and we have a lot of farmans from every Mughal king of, of that, especially from Akbar's time onwards, uh, that you would have a grant given to a sajada nashin, they didn't call it a Sufi, they called it a sajada nashin, means someone who is just sitting on the sajada, sitting on the, on the Jani Mas, right, and uh, these grants, what their purpose was, was to promote Islam, really, was that these Sufis would then go into the towns, and then bring people to Islam, sometimes during the season of Milad, sometimes during the season of, um, you know, uh, Eid and, and things of this nature. They would 
you know, do, do extra effort to, to come and convert people. But that element is true for sure. Um, but a lot of that can only happen because A, the Mughals are conquering these regions and B, they're funding them. And, th and that true is, that's not everyone, right? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, let me do that. I said I would, yeah, thank you for reminding me. Yeah. 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 I mean, as an if that's yeah. Yeah. That's just one example. Yeah. Absolutely. No, thank you for that. Um, as a, if that's another classroom, I'm not going to encourage anyone to create a television show. But I think that art in its form um, is really powerful, right? And an extremely powerful in the way that people understand beauty and past and they get emotionally, because art is, it's, you're not reading anything. It's, it's a very emotional thing, right? And it spurs those emotions. So yeah, I would, I would definitely support mutlaqan, very generally forms of art to, to understand our past and depict Muslims beautifully. And we know what's going on in India. Right? They, every, every new um, film that they have depicts Muslims as murderers, villains, rapists, you name it. Right? And you don't think that has an impact on the average Indian who then, you know, and, and, and I apologize for keep bringing up the violence that's going to to Indian Muslims uh, in this way, but it's important, right? That people, minds are being changed. Right? And as, I don't know, I think that if Muslims fought that battle on a historical and in an artistic way, I think, I think that we could win because we have, what do, what do they have? I mean, we have actual history, right? So, yeah, um, just really quickly. So he says, He says, the seeds of disbelief that Akbar grew. Um, it came, it, um, Dara Shuko, who is the brother of Aurangzeb, Dara Shuko, he breathed it in his fitra. The candle of the heart in their hearts, Ayn Akbar and Darashuko, it was not a light. Right? We were not safe uh, from their facade. But Alam Gir Aurangzeb came in, chose Haq on Faqir Sahibi Shamshir And that Faqir, who was the holder of the sword, as Pay Ihyahi Deen Ma'mur Kal. Right and through um, the the uh, sort of he pay means foot, but he's saying uh, he establishing the ihya, the revival of the religion. It's as if he was almost commanded. Then he was commanded to uh, do a revival of yaqeen, to renew yaqeen in the world. So that is Akbar's view. Uh, sorry, Iqbal's view on Akbar. And uh, I, I want to say this, you know. Um, I, I, I love I love Iqbal. You know, I in fact I studied Farsi just so I could read Iqbal's Farsi. I was so moved by by his shikwa, and I memorized it during my Nurul Anwar class in Azadul in South Africa. Um, and I I I you know truly Iqbal is so so brilliant. And I and I and I want Muslims to learn Urdu just to read Iqbal. I don't you know just if they could read Iqbal. I don't think that 
the the what what the, the beauty that Iqbal depicted of Muslims living under colonialism, living in modernity. No other Muslim from West Africa to in, uh, from Morocco to India had, had has really achieved. Um, but and and also to say that Iqbal had read history really really carefully and really thoroughly. Um, and if this was his opinion, that's a fair opinion. And um, just because people call him a poet doesn't mean that he's not also a historian. He is also, without a doubt, someone who's widely, widely read in history. And if um, also saying this is poetry, but at the same time, this is you know something an opinion that Iqbal also had. And al-Rasi wal-Ain, he is a mahir fun. Iqbal is a mahir fun in this in, in the subject, and we don't talk about Iqbal as a historian enough. And I wish and I wish we did. But yeah. Yeah. Akbar and Joda. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I, I forgot to mention that. Um, the word Joda does not appear in any, uh, any, any Mughal text. Um, by the way, the, the movie Mughal-i Azim was based on a fictional novel um, written in the 19th century by a Lucknowi poet. You know, so not based on that. Uh, it is clear that he did marry some daughters of Rajput, as so did Jahangir, so did Aurangzeb. Um, but the only name that comes in these books is Maryam Zamani, the Maryam of her era. So it seems like she converted to Islam. So what, what that narrative, and that's the only, I mean, by the way, this, this is a printed book, but you can find dozens of these manuscripts from, you know, America to England, to India, to Pakistan, to the Akbar Nama. So um, the only name that comes up is Maryam Zamani, the Maryam of her era. Yeah, Jazakallah Khair, Jazakallah. Yeah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahabihi Sayyidina Muhammadin wa barik wa sallam. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqa wa razuqna attiba'a. وأرنا الباطل باطلا ورزقنا اجتنابه اللهم إن نسألك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما سعد منه نبيك محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم تمستان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم برحمةك يا أرحم الراحمين جزاك الله خير يا أمين أمين